Boom, boom, boom. What up, folks? And welcome to another episode of In The Area Podcast, your weekly source for wisdom nuggets. I am Zach Schiller, your host, and I am so excited for you guys to be a part of the season two opener with Mike Krupka. Mike is the founder of Bain Capital Ventures, the venture capital arm of Bain Capital, a private investment firm that manages over $120 billion worldwide. Mike also sits on nine boards, contributes to multiple nonprofits, and is a father of four. I am so excited for you guys to hear a little bit about his background, some stories from working at one of the most successful companies in the world. We collected a lot of wisdom nuggets. Recording live from Snowy Vale, Colorado. Enjoy today's episode. Mike, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And before we jump into your career, I would love if you could share a little bit about your parents' background because I think it's fascinating. So my dad was born in 1938 in Bucharest, Romania, and his father was a senior diplomat in the Czech government. Spoke 12 languages and really senior in the government. And so he was born in Bucharest while my grandfather was stationed there. And then after about a year, moved to Prague where he lived for about seven years and then moved to Ankara, Turkey for about one year. And in 1948, when my dad was just nine years old, um, Stalin came in to Czech, the Czech Republic after World War II and kind of took over the government. And so my family was scared that they were going to get killed by the communists. So they left quickly and they had a diplomatic visa to Ottawa, to Canada. So they emigrated to uh, Canada and settled in Ottawa starting at age nine. And my dad grew up there, went to high school there and went to McGill College. Then he... Um, was a big science guy. So he went to Cornell University, get his PhD in physics. And after that, went to Oxford in uh, the UK for postdoctoral work. He focused on lasers and optical research. And then after that, got a job at Bell Labs in New Jersey. And Bell Labs was the premier research institute for science in the world, um, other than maybe some places in Russia. Um, and so the top scientists in the world went to, uh, to Bell Labs and he went there did optical research and a bunch of laser research. And so I grew up in New Jersey and that's kind of how I ended up there. So I was born in Cornell, uh, spent two years in Oxford in uh, in the UK and then New Jersey for the, the rest of my high school career. Your mom also has a fascinating story. Do you mind sharing like what your mom's, what your mom's story is too? Sure. So she's Canadian um, as well. And her dad was in the Royal, Can- Royal Canadian Mounted Police, RCMP. And she did two tours of duty down in South Africa. One when she was very young and then when, when she was a teenager, and she was also born in 1938. And so coming back during World War II, they put all their belongings on one ship and they got another ship. And fortunately, they made it to Canada. Their uh, furnishings did not. It was torpedoed by a German U-boat while the boat was going from South Africa back up to Canada. So they survived, got back to Canada and lived in Ottawa as well. And then my parents met at McGill. I want to talk a little bit about going through college because you didn't have a straight path. It wasn't like you just went, you knew what you wanted to do, you know, going from high school into college. Can you talk a little bit about what your college journey was like and how you figured out, you know, eventually what direction you went in? Sure. So uh, as I said, my dad was a physicist, so he was big in the sciences and that got me into sciences. And so we would do a bunch of different types of science experiments, which sounds kind of geeky, but I I really enjoyed it. So we did some laser research and we did some other stuff when I was in junior high and high school. And I really got into the sciences. And then I also was a little bit of a pyro, which I think a lot of young boys are. And so I kind of 
called those my science experiments as well, but I would burn anything, uh, blow up anything that wow. I could find. And so I put those two together. And then in high school, I had a really, really good chemistry teacher. And she was awesome and got me really fired up. So I actually go in early uh, to school and do science experiments and chemistry experiments with her. So I was thinking I'd be a chemist. So I looked at a bunch of science-related colleges, but also uh, I played a lot of sports. So I played the cross, I played soccer, and I wrestled. Uh, and I skied um, through high school. And so I, I decided not to go to a pure science school. Ended up at Dartmouth College, um, played the cross there. Uh, I was a chemistry major. So I did a lot of chemistry, physics, math, biology. And I got into about junior year in college and was doing quantum chemistry, which is pretty arcane stuff. Yo, can you, what is, what is quantum chemistry? So quantum, quantum physics, quantum chemistry, quantum math is all around what happens inside atoms as opposed to what happens with atoms. So most of physics and chemistry and other things have to do with how do atoms combine and they form molecules and they form substances. But inside atoms, things behave quite differently than atoms themselves behave. Mm. And so quantum is just a level of, of energy. And so within atoms, there's levels of energy. And so you start to figure out what happens within atoms. And so things like fission that make nuclear bombs and fusion that make reactors have to do with quantum uh, mechanics and quantum uh, physics and so on. So by your junior year, quantum chemistry, quantum physics, but you're, you're realizing that it's not exactly for you. So what, what did you move into after quantum chemistry and quantum physics? So I, I, during summers in college, I tried different things. So I think it was my freshman, after my freshman year, I worked in a machine shop and that was a pretty tough job because all I did all day was drill holes in a piece of metal. So I'd pick it up on one side of me, I'd put it on a drill press, I'd drill holes in it, I'd put it down next to me and I'd do another one. Mm. And I wasn't a union worker, but effectively I, I kind of felt like it and the silver food truck would show up at 11 and two and I'd go buy a sausage sandwich and decided I didn't want to work in a factory. So mm. that, that idea went by the wayside. As I said, junior by junior year, the chemistry idea went by the wayside. And I ended up getting a job at Goldman Sachs the summer between junior and senior year in college. And I worked in M&A, mergers and acquisitions. And I actually hated the job, but my boss was an ex-consultant from Boston Consulting Group, which was a big consulting firm. And I knew nothing about consulting, but he kind of told me what it was all about. So when I was graduating, I started applying to consulting firms. And at the time, one of the top consulting firms was a firm called Bain & Company, started by a guy, Bill Bain, super talented guy. And on the cover of the New York Times Magazine, which comes in every Sunday paper, was a picture of Bill Bain. And he was bald and he was very stern-faced and kind of uh, kind of aggressive looking. And the headline of the of the cover said, Bain and Company, the KGB of consulting. And I was like, I want to work there. Mm-hmm. And so I did everything good to get a job at Bain and Company and ended up doing that and uh, worked wow. in Boston right after college. So you said you did everything to get into it. Like what were some of the things that you did to, to get into Bain and Co.? Um, I did all the research. Like, and this is before the internet. So like Doing research was not easy. You had to go find articles in paper form and newspapers. And so I found all the articles I could. I talked to people. I just read about business. I I was a chemistry major. I knew nothing about business, really. So I tried to get smart about business. So Mm. when I showed up for the interview, I was semi-coherent. And it's so different now. Like the kids who show up for interviews now, like they have the internet at their fingertips. They've been thinking about business for years. Wow. I mean, I look back and I don't know how they hired me, but but they did. <laughs> Do you remember that first interview? Oh yeah, I I w- it was a series of interviews. Okay, and I got to the end of the interview, and there's a guy. His name is David Beckhoffer. He's still re- uh, involved with the firm. 
super smart, really fun guy. And I got to the end of the interviews and he said, hey, so Mike, we really like you. If we, if we offer you the job, will you take it? And I said, well, I'm kind of like 70% sure I'll take it. He goes, 70%, that's it? You seem like really excited. I said, okay, I'm like 90% sure I'll take it. And he goes, 90%, that's it? I said, okay, I'm like, I'm, I'm almost sure I'll take the job. And he goes, okay, then take the fucking job. Um, so I said, okay. So I took it. Why do you think, why weren't you 100% there? Because it was like rapid fire interviews, a whole day, of like wow. six interviews. I was like, ah, I want to think about this. Right. And, I mean, I knew going in, I wanted it, but then by the end of this, I was like brain dead. I was just like, wow. I want to think about this for a minute, but, but I took it on the spot. Were you trained at all? Were you trained to to do these interviews before? Or no. Were you totally just figuring it out as you went? I was figuring it out as, as okay. I went along. And now you can buy books and you can right. do interview courses and all kinds of stuff. And I, I can do nothing. Wow. I, I just kind of winged it. So you, so so after this series of interviews, you take the job on the spot there when they offer it to you. Yep. And then how long are you working at Bain & Company then? So I worked there for three years. Um, and during my time... I learned a ton. It was a tremendous organization, still is. Some of the best people in the world, I think. It's really smart, down-to-earth, talented people, and great mentorship program. And it's real, only gotten better since I was there. Um, so I learned a ton, um, but I was thinking I wanted to do something else after that. And I had started investing in public stocks during my time there. And this was still before the internet. And so I would finish my work, and I'd take the Wall Street Journal. And in the back of the Wall Street Journal, there's the NASDAQ stock tables. And it shows a 52-week high-low and it shows the price. And so my strategy was pretty simple. I would look for stocks that were had a big 52-week high, low range that was at the low end of the range. And then in the library, we had a library, no internet, there was a paper book from Moody's. Uh, and so Moody's still exists, but it's all online now. And it was a paper book and it had two years of a stock chart. And so if the stock had gone up and down a bunch of times over two years, and it was at the low end, I was like, well, it's probably going to go up again. Hmm. So I'd go, Fidelity had... A touchstone trading. So you take your touchstone phone and you type in on the keypad your account number and then how many shares you wanted to buy of the stock. So I would find these stocks. I didn't even know what the companies really did. I would just assume they, if they went up and down a bunch of times, wow. they're going to do it again. And so I made a bunch of money doing that. So wow. when, and then Bain Capital was started by Bill Bain as well in 1984. I joined Bain and Company in 87. So um, not too long after Bain Capital started. And then I got approached by the people at Bain Capital to go leave Bain and & Company and go to Bain Capital. And I knew something about investing. And so I took the interview there and ended up at Bain Capital. Wow. And so, and and just before we leave the subject, had someone advised you, like, this is a strategy that works in the market and, like, you should do it? Or was this totally divide? Like, was this something that you thought up of? I just kind of thought it up. I was just trying to figure out how am I going to invest in stocks and how am I going to do it in a way that doesn't take a ton of research? And because I have, was working so hard and have time to do all the research. So I figured I'd try this with, you know, a few thousand dollars and see if it worked. And if it worked, I'd build into it over time. Well, wow, and that, that's really exciting. And then what was your time like when you first started at, at Bain Capital? Um, it was great because the people at Bain Capital also were tremendous people. And most of them at that point had come from Bain & Company. Mm. And they were kind of the cream of, of Bain & Company people. And so I kind of got thrown in the fire of evaluating private companies now instead of public companies. And it was early stage companies. So these were a million in revenue to $20 million in revenue and growing quickly, mostly tech-based. And so they would just tell me, start understanding this company, meet the team. And they would work with me in a huge mentorship way. And uh, I just absorbed all this information, a lot of hours, but absorbed a lot of information and learned a ton and really enjoyed it. Well, and can you describe what bank and bank capital is? Sure. So bank capital today is quite different than it was then. 
today, as I said, it was started in 1984. Today, it manages about $120 billion around the world. We have about 1,000 employees, um, over half of which are investment professionals. And we have a bunch of different business units that invest in different types of things. So Bank Capital Ventures is where I spent a bulk of my time. And we invest in startup companies, venture capital companies, and small growth companies. We have Bank Capital Private Equity in the US, Europe, and Asia. And Bank Capital Private Equity buys large companies. So we've owned Domino's Pizza and Burger King and Canada Goose and Bombardier Watercraft and all kinds of different companies. So big established companies. We have Bain Capital Public Equity, its own, which invests in public equities. Bain Capital Credit, which invests in debt and junk bonds. Bain Capital Double Impact, which is a social impact investing uh, business. Bain Capital Life Sciences, which invests in molecules, I call them. So drugs and drug discovery related mm. things. And we have Bain Capital Tech Ops, which invests in growth technology companies. And we have Bain Capital Real Estate, which invests in commercial real estate. So wide spectrum. Wide spectrum, yeah. And, and were you involved in, in many of these different areas? I was involved with Bain Capital Private Equity for about 10 years and then Bain Capital Ventures for about 20 years. Right, and you were you were one of the people who helped start Bain Ventures. Yep, so in, in 1999, the first internet boom happened and we were really a private equity firm. We were buying large established companies, but on the side, we would find these small tech companies so we would invest a small amount of money in. And it worked out pretty well. And then it, in April of 2000, the internet blew up for the first time. And then we kind of scratched our heads and thought, should we keep investing in internet companies and startups or not? And so uh, I was asked and kind of raised my hand to say, I'll go look at the venture capital marketplace and decide if it's something this firm should focus on or not. And after about six months of work in 2000, I decided after consulting with the senior team there that it would be a good strategy for Bain Capital to invest in. And in fact, I would like to lead that. So I stopped doing private equity deals and was the founder of Bain Capital Ventures uh, within the broader firm. And I hired a couple external partners and then four more junior guys from internally. And the seven of us started Bain Capital Ventures in February of 2001. Wow. And what was that experience like starting Bain Ventures? Um, it was really hard because it was what 2000 and 2000 early 2001 were called nuclear winter in the venture capital world because the internet had been such a huge bubble and then such a huge explosion that the world was still in disarray around venture capital investing. So we kind of went hat in hand in starting December of 2000 to a bunch of the bank capital investors, which are pension funds and college endowments and wealthy families and told them we were going to start a venture capital fund. And they, many of them scratched their head and said, why would you do that? How much you noticed the internet blew up and you know, it seems like a tough place to be investing. But finally, we scraped together $250 million from investors, and that was the first fund. Wow. And I kind of thought I knew what I was doing, but looking back, I had no idea what I was doing. Wow. Yeah. So how did you guys fare on that first fund? The first fund worked out pretty well because we had a couple really good investments that kind of carried us. So we made a lot of mistakes and learned from those. Um, and luckily, had a couple big investments that returned a lot of um, money. And so we survived the first fund. We raised another fund. So we raised the fund in 01 and then 05, 07, 09, 12, 14, 16, 19, and 21. Wow. Yeah. And what do you think are some of the important principles to remember if you're working in venture capital? And before we talk about that, yeah. can you share like what venture capital is for someone listening who might not know? Sure. Venture capital is investing in early stage companies. So these companies could be a person and an idea. So it's even not really a company yet. And you might give them a few hundred thousand dollars, or it could be a company with a million or five or 10 million in revenues, but they're typically 
less than $10 million in revenue. Um, they're typically growing quickly. They're innovative. They don't have to be tech-based, but most of the venture capital is technology-based these days, software-based. Um, and so we'll invest in the company. We'll join the board. And then we'll help that founding CEO build out their management team. We'll help them think about their strategy. We'll help them raise more money. We'll help them um, buy another company maybe if, uh, down the road. But we really are a deep advisor with an equity ownership because we invested in the company. Some, maybe some principles that you could share with us that are important to remember if you're in the VC world and you're looking at different companies. Like yeah. What were some things that you were looking for, especially when evaluating companies? The number one thing, and it sounds really simplistic, and to some degree it is, but it's actually more complicated than you would think, is it's all about the people. And, and everyone always says that, but an A-plus CEO will make you a lot of money. An A CEO may make you money. An A minus CEO is probably not going to make you money. And so then the question is, how do you tell the difference between an A, an A minus, and an A plus? And part of that comes with just experience. Mm. Because once you start meeting really talented people, you'll your first reaction will be, they're an A plus. And then you work with them for a while and you realize, mm, they're not as good as I thought. And then you meet someone better and you go, no, they're an A plus. And just over time of meeting a lot of people and realizing what really, really good is, you just learn. Wow. And so it just takes time to figure out what a really talented executive is. So a lot of it is intuition that you build through experience. Are there maybe like some, is there one or two qualities that you've been able to say, this is a quality that's a must have. It's a necessary condition for an A+. Uh, if there's one thing that would be consistent, it's all out grit. Mm. Uh, because when you're starting a company, even when it's a young company, you have to go to customers, prospective customers and say, I either going to build this product for you or I have it and don't worry, it's going to work. Mm. And they're going to say no over and over and over and you just can't quit. And so you just have to have huge amounts of persistence and grit. And then the other thing that's going to happen is things are going to go wrong. Every day, things are going to go wrong. And if you let that get you down, you won't keep moving forward. Mm. And so this idea of persistence and grit is one big thing. Well, I, I love that. Yeah, grit. So the, grit. the ability to overcome obstacles and... and persevering, like you were saying. Right. Do you think that these qualities are just intrinsic in some people, like they're just born with them? Or do you think the quality of grit can be developed through different experiences? Well, there's tons of books on that subject. So if you <laughs> go true. read yeah, Doug, There's in fact one called Grit. There's one called Grit, Angela right, Duckworth. Read, yeah, exactly. I haven't read it, but I- Which is yeah. a really good book. It's worth reading. Oh, cool. It's okay. a very interesting book. Um, and so my perspective is a little bit of both. Um, you're born with some form of grit and your environment can create grit. And a lot of what she talks about in her book is environmental grit. Wow. Um, and so the other way to say it is if you're given too much in life, if you're, if you're helped along too much, if you don't feel pain, if you don't um, lose, if you don't um, make mistakes and learn from them and feel the pain of mistakes, you won't build grit. So I think some people can go through tough experiences and build grit. Some people who are born with a lot of grit just naturally whatever their mindset is and end up in those experiences mm. end up really doing well because they just, keep moving forward no matter what the circumstances are. Well, and I was going to ask you this question later, but now we're in the kind of territory of literature and books. So <laughs> are there any books or pieces of literature that have greatly impacted your life and your way of thinking? I, I don't have a book that says you should read. And, and frankly, to me, a lot of business books aren't worth reading hmm. because it really isn't easy as an author of a business book to pick a subject and find examples that support your thesis. And it doesn't mean the thesis is right. Um, it just means that you're a good writer and can find examples that make it's it sound right. The argument, yeah. Right? And so, you know, I don't spend a lot of time reading business books. I, I read more for pleasure than 
That's and interesting. For it. But you do you do read you do you read at least weekly or monthly? Yeah, yeah. Nice. Yeah. That's awesome. So moving forward, I, yesterday we talked a little bit about your experience at Bain Capital Ventures. You were saying that you would actually go into these companies, and you you worked as the president for a, a few companies. Can you talk about maybe a few of those experiences? Sure. So in the early days of Bain Capital, we we would often get involved with companies that were challenged. And that's the reason we could buy them cheaply because they weren't performing that well. So we would buy them pretty cheaply and then we'd go and try and fix them. And often the person who led that investment would go work on it. And so I worked in one company in 1993. I was still a junior person at Bain Capital. And the partner asked me to go be the CFO of a company that was really challenged. So I commuted from Boston to St. Paul, Minnesota for about nine months and I acted as a CFO. And I did everything from creating a whole new financial reporting system to restructuring the debt to actually doing a big layoff, which wasn't fun, um, to restructuring a whole computer software program uh, that was being done by Ernst & Young that didn't work effectively. And so I did all kinds of stuff to help the company survive. Wow. And yeah. were these things that you had done before, prior to joining that company? Like, nope. No so idea. How do you- So I landed there. I landed in St. Paul, Minnesota, went to the company, and I knew it because I was involved in the investment. But I didn't know anything about being a CFO. And so I get there and there was a controller who controller's typically a step below a CFO. And so I get there and I say to the guy, so how are we doing in cash? And when's the next payroll? And he says, well, we have a payroll Friday. This was Monday. We have a payroll Friday and I don't think we're going to make it. I was like, what? I said, okay, so what are we going to do? And he goes, I don't know. I think we're going to run out of money. So no, we're not going to run out of money. He said, don't pay any other vendors from now on for the rest of the week. Don't pay anyone. And we're going to call some customers and tell them, see if we can get us paid early. So I spent the week on the phone, first with the vendors. And I'd call, the, I said, give me a list of the biggest vendors to the smallest. And it was like IBM and our landlord. And, and so I'd just call them and said, I'm sorry, I can't pay you. I can probably pay you in like three weeks, but I need a reprieve. And so I went through every vendor and told them I wasn't going to pay. So that prevented us from putting cash out the door. And then I said, give me the biggest customers to the smallest. And I started calling them and said, hey, you know, I really need you to pay early. And I didn't want to scare them. So I had to come up with all these stories around why we needed the cash. So I spent the first week on the phone finding money so we could make payroll. Wow. Um, and literally had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> literally just on the spot yeah. trying to find, yeah. tr- trying to jimmy rig our right. solution. Exactly. And ultimately, did, did this work out? Like, did this- um, We saved the company. We didn't make any money on our investment, but we saved the company. Um, and it actually worked out okay in the end. Um, just a bad investment for us, but at least people kept their jobs and the debt got all their money back. So from that standpoint, it was a win. Okay. Wow. Jeez. Do you have any favorite failures of yours? Like did, were there, was there ever a moment in your career where you actually, you felt like you experienced a failure and then had to come back from that? Oh yeah. I have a lot. Like I've, I've been unfortunately involved with a lot of investments that didn't work and fortunately involved with, with many more that worked that offset the ones that didn't work. And that's why you have a portfolio. But the, the biggest mistakes I've made in general go back to the point about what are the biggest things you look for, and it's leadership. And the biggest mistakes I made are backing CEOs who weren't good uh, and then sticking with them too long. Mm. And so if you invest in a company and the CEO you think is good and they end up not to be, not to be that good, it's easy to sit there and rationalize why they didn't hit their budget or why they didn't make that decision. And then through, and every investor goes through this. And then they say to themselves, well, if I fire this CEO, I got to go find a new one and can I find a better one? And maybe I'll just help this CEO and 
Maybe I'll get them a new head of sales that could help sell more business. And all these rationalizations go through your mind and you actually delay, 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 making a hard decision. And what I've learned is once you decide that that person's not the right person for the job, it could be the CEO, it could be head of sales, it could be anyone. Once you decide they're not the right person, then you should find someone else for the job hmm. as fast as you can. And hmm. don't worry about all the other risks. And the way I boil it down is if you, you're 100% sure it's the wrong person for the job and you can hire someone and you're not going to be 100% right at hiring the person, but you're going to be better than zero. Mm. So maybe you're 50-50 hiring someone. So if my odds are 50-50 of getting a great person and my odds are zero of having a great person, I might as well take the 50-50 odds over the zero odds. Mm. And some people say, yeah, but then if you hire the wrong person, you might have to fire them and get another one. I said, yeah, that's still better than 100% likely to have the wrong CEO. Right. And so that's a lesson that's hard to learn and a lot of people still make it. And so a lot of what we do as investors is making sure we have the right CEO for the next period of that company's life. Mm. And it doesn't mean they're a bad person. It doesn't mean they're a bad CEO. They yeah. may not be the right person to take it to the next level. Oh. Um, and so we go find someone who does and maybe that CEO should go back and go to a smaller company where they can take it small and bring it up to midsize and we'll find someone who can take it from midsize to large. And there are very distinct differences in going from mid-sized or you know, small to mid, mid to large. Yeah. And just, I mean, there are all kinds of different ones, but as an example, when you're a really small company, you might have 20 or 30 employees. The CEO has their fingers in everything. They're in every sales deal. They're managing the product. They're in fingers into the finances everywhere. And they're working together as a team. And it's, a, it's kind of a little bit of controlled chaos, but they're involved with everything. And as you get bigger, as a CEO, you can't afford to do that. You need to get yourself out of the weeds and into the bigger picture. So you go from being directly involved in everything to spending most of your time hiring your team. Mm. And then, so you might have six or seven or eight direct reports and you might be spending 50% of your time just managing that team. And then 20% of your time finding replacements for the team because one of your team members isn't going to make the next level. So, level. so you need to get a New CFO, let's say. So you got to go recruit new CFO. That takes time. And then you have some time externally. So the time needs, the skill needs, and the skill of working through people as opposed to working with people is really different. Mm. And so we just find that very few founders can go all the way to a large-scale company because mm. their skill sets are really different and the needs of the company are really different. How is the CEO of a large company spending their time? A large company would be big picture strategy. Like where are we heading in the next five years with the company? Um, managing the team and then also managing its investors. Got it. Often because a lot, a lot of the big companies are public companies and the CEO needs to spend a bunch of time talking to all the people who own its stock. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Well, Mike, your life isn't all business. You're also involved in several nonprofits. Can you talk a little bit about the work that you do there? Sure. Really at a headline level, a big passion of mine has been inner city youth. And I spent a number of years in Boston and there are some pretty tough areas in and around Boston. And I always felt like I was lucky through my whole life. I was lucky to have great parents. I was lucky to be born um, into that family. I was lucky to get a great education. You know, I, was, I had so much luck that got to me where I was. And then as I learned more about inner city youth and what families they're born into and lack of, of opportunities and lack of economic jobs and access access and things like that. And so I was like, I, I got to do something to help. And so many years ago, 20, over 25 years ago, I joined the board of Boys and Girls Clubs of Boston. And um, we serve about 15,000 youth in and around Boston. We have annual budget of about $25 million. And 
what I say as part of that organization is it takes a long time to build a great kid. And if you think about most of us, we've had good families and we've had great educations. We have access to lots of things and we learned music and we learned sports and we learned science and we learned math. And we went home to a good house and we knew what good nutrition was and we knew how to brush our teeth. And you go into an inner city, not just in Boston, but around the country, around the world, you know, there are kids who don't know they should brush their teeth. There are kids who don't know that an apple is more healthy than Doritos. It's also true that fast food is the worst food for you, but also the cheapest food. And so all these things exist in inner city. And so I spent a lot of time with boys and girls clubs trying to help solve that problem. Wow. And and what does that work like? Like, do you find that to be very rewarding just generally in your life to have these kinds of experiences? Yeah, it's really rewarding because like I said, I feel so lucky on so many dimensions that I want to give back. And it's not just money. A lot of what I spent time on was helping the organization be successful as opposed to delivering the services to the kids. Mm. So I would visit some of the clubhouses, but that's not where I spent my time. I spent my time helping the organization run like a business. And, and what, I, what I say to nonprofits is you should run yourself like a business. And doesn't mean don't have empathy and don't deliver the service you need and don't think about the kids or whatever service you're delivering, but a business has to think about efficiency of its dollar. So if I'm a company, I'm thinking about where do I spend my next dollar? In sales, in marketing, in product, in finance. And the more effective I can spend that dollar, the more competitive I can be as a company, the more likely I survive and can grow. And it's the same thing for a nonprofit. Instead of revenue, we get donor dollars. And the more effectively we can take that donor dollar and invest it in the service delivery toward a youth, the more effective we're going to be at getting more donor dollars, the more likely we're going to stay alive, the more likely we can grow and be successful. And so a lot of my time was around helping the Boys and Girls Clubs of Boston think about running themselves like a company would, Mm. which means defining what are we trying to accomplish and where are we going to invest their incremental dollar and can we hire great people and how do we get them aligned? Everything that a business does, they do. They just don't have revenue. They have donor dollars and they don't put out a product. They put out a service to youth and families. So you would go in and you would help them identify that this is where we need to spend some effort right now is how do we operate as a better business? And you would go in and physically make these some of these changes. Yeah, so the- for example, we would say we, we had five clubhouses around Boston and the kids would come after school to the clubhouse and they would do homework help and sports and all kinds of things. And so a question was, how many kids should be in a, cl- a clubhouse per day? And how long should our waiting list be? And how many kindergartners, first grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, and eighth grade. And should we be delivering college prep work or swimming or both? Mm. And so all these questions exist. And the more effective you are at delivering more services to more youth, the longer, the farther your donor dollar goes. So we spent a lot of time thinking it's no different than a company would think about its manufacturing facility. You know, what kind of products should be in there and how many and how should the lines work? And we just think about how do you optimize resources to deliver the most services to the most kids with the highest efficiency. That's amazing. So you're not only a business guy, you're not only a service guy, but you're also a dad. You have you have two children, correct? I have four kids. Four kids. Four so kids. how so how do, how does that play in everything? And so just from the sounds of it, it's like you're so busy with all this stuff at work and service. How do you how do you manage all the time with families on top of that? Um, it's it's a lot to manage. Kids now are 22. Jimmy, 22, Cat 20, Cha, which is short for Charlie, um, 18, and Alex, 14. And Alex is at Vail Mountain School, and the rest are kind of scattered around. Jimmy's on the U.S. ski team and does some time at Dartmouth College when he can. 
Cat is a sophomore at Colorado College, and Chaz is a senior at Proctor Academy in New Hampshire. So they're kind of all over the place. So wow. we just make it all work. And when we, we were all together, and, and it was even complicated, but it was easier. Right. But now they're they're kind of you know leaving oh, the nest. Leave and the kind nest. Of on yeah, 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 yeah. Another thing I'm curious about, you know, you have you have children in college. What would you say, what would your advice be to a driven student just graduating from college about to enter the real world? What what advice should they remember? And maybe what is some advice that they should avoid? Okay, my, my view on your life, which is coming out of college, is figure out what you're really, really passionate about and go figure out how to get a job doing that. Uh, because I've seen so many people put the wrong emphasis on the wrong parameter. So for example, people come out of college and they're really passionate about you know, government, and, but they look at investment banking and say, oh my God, look at all the money I can make doing this. I'm gonna go to New York City and go work in investment banking. And they get there and they don't like New York City, they don't like investment banking and they're making a lot of money and they do it for two or three years. And it's like, well, why did you do that? Like, if you don't like it, don't do it. So go find something you're really, really passionate about and make that your career. And then decide after that what else you want to optimize. So you might really care about money, but you might want to be guitarist. And so go figure out first and foremost how to be a great guitarist and then figure out can you make money doing that and how do you do that? Mm. But start with everything should start around what's your core passion and focus on that because it's hard to get out of bed for a job you don't like. But if there's something you love, you'll get out of bed and you'll just kick butt all day long and then optimize the rest around it. So that's the thing to do. The thing to avoid is kind of the opposite of what I said, which is make sure you know know what you really care about and focus on that. Mm. And then another thing is if you get into a job that you don't like, don't stay there too long. Like it's easy, inertia is a really strong force and it's easy to stay doing something just because you don't want to change. Mm. And humans often have a hard time changing. And so my other advice is if you don't like it, stop, go do something else. Don't keep doing something you don't like. Why would you do that? Mm. So, so, so just start, like if you're in, if you're in for all the people listening right now, if you're in something that you don't like, actively look for something else and then move into the, move into that. Yeah, and it's going to feel painful and you may make less money or you may have, you have to work harder or lots of things may be different. But like, if you visualize yourself getting up every morning and going, oh God, I got to go do this now versus getting up in the morning, I'm so excited to take on this new, you know, educational project in the inner city or whatever it might be. Like find that passion. It just, wow. you have one life to live. Be passionate about it. Mm. An- another question I'm really curious to see how people answer is uh, how they how they prioritize these three different themes. So relationships, experience, career. How, how do you prioritize, how would you rank them in terms of most important to least important? I would put relationships first because it is all about people. And, and I would say surround yourself with great people who are like-minded, who want to, share your values and your philosophies and that'll make your life because everything else comes out of that. Um, so relationships is number one. I don't know. I guess experience is kind of a byproduct of, of great relationships. It comes out of that. And, and, you know, great people where, whether you're doing fun things or whether you're doing business things, you know, experiences come from working with great people and they'll pull you in different directions and great people will be complimentary of you to you as well. So, Maybe you're the really creative one and they're the really structured one. So find those people who have like minds but have complementary skills and you're going to create great experiences. Good, Great relationships is the bedrock of everything else. So good things come from great relationships. Yeah. And if you're in a bad relationship, a bad job, a bad personal relationship, go. Exit. Exit. 
don't hang around. You know, why would you do that? Wow. Well, Mike, just before we leave, and, and I've tremendously enjoyed this interview. We talked briefly about this yesterday. What is the, what is the meaning of life? I, I know it sounds like a cliche question, but have you thought about it or do you have a perspective on that? I, I, I don't spend a lot of time kind of thinking about the meaning of life, but I, the, the way I've tried to live my life is like, find things you really enjoy to do, like we talked about. Find great people to do them with. Um, be honest, open, transparent. Treat people how you want to be treated. And, you know, and push yourself. And I would say like, and I tell my kids this, I tell everyone this, like, if you're going to do something, work hard at it. Like, be the best that you can be at it. You may not be the best in the world at it, but at least try your hardest to do it really, really well. Because if you're going to take an hour to go do math homework, work hard for an hour. Or if you're going to be a lacrosse player, be the best lacrosse player you can be, or doctor or nurse or whatever you want to do. Like, Push yourself to be really good at what you're going to do. Because if you find something you're passionate about and you push yourself really hard, you're going to go to bed every night feeling good about yourself. And if you treat people well and surround yourself with great people, then like, that's just, that's kind of what life is about, I think. Well, well, Mike, I just think in this entire interview, there's been, there's so much wisdom that, and, and amazing things that we can learn from you and, and the things that we talked about. So I'm deeply grateful for you coming onto the podcast and you sharing your nuggets of wisdom with us. Well, thanks. I, I appreciate it. And I enjoyed talking with you today. Well, have a great night, Mike. Okay. Thank you.